Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram and I just want to let you guys know in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera. I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Karen Tibbles, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'm so excited to talk to you today. And thank you for putting up with my cold voice and uh, occasional coughs and, and sniffles, which probably will be edited out by producer Josh for the listening public. But thank you guys for, for putting up with my slightly affected voice here. Karen, your background is in marketing, and uh, you also have a master's in Quaker church history. Just tell us a little bit about how those two go together. H how did one lead to the other? Well, I was working for a major corporation, and uh, I had had thoughts of becoming a minister, but it kind of didn't make a lot of sense in my denomination, because in my area, the country Quakers don't have ministers. We're all ministers, unpaid. And uh, so I was really trying to make sense of that thought when um, I had a call in 2011. I woke up one morning and said, that's why I need to go. To, to seminary. And it really was to look into uh, what the theology was behind Quaker businesses. So I did a thesis on that. So it really pulls together the two aspects of my, of my life, my business and my, and my faith. But I also ran into a theory in seminary, which as part of the thesis I wrote, which talked about, to me, it, it really helped explain why people did what they did. And the more I thought about it, the more I played with it, the more intrigued I got. 
And I started talking to people about it. And they said, oh, so then I wrote a book about it and marketing. And my friends picked up the book because they heard me talking about it. And, and they said, but what am I supposed to do with it? <laughs> because I'm not in marketing. So that's why I wrote my second book, Persuade, Don't Preach, which explains moral foundation theory and how that applies to understanding the world around us and what's going on and what you can do about it. And that theory, moral foundations theory, was created by a little gentleman named Jonathan Haidt that people who've been listening to this show for a while might recognize that name. And you and I met at Theology Beer Camp back in the fall and, and had a uh, short but very intriguing conversation, which has led finally after some rescheduling to this conversation. So I'm really excited. You've applied his moral foundations theory to churches. And so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the theory and then we're going to talk about the application in church context. Yeah, in my work, I've mostly focused on the first five moral foundations that Hyde identified, um, which are respect for authority, belonging, sacredness, care for others, and fairness. He has a sixth, which is liberty, and the research is a little bit squishier on that, so I really focused on the first five. So let's talk a little bit about moral foundations theory, broadly speaking. So Jonathan Haidt, he was at NYU. Before that, he was at Virginia, I think, uh, yep. UVA and developed, you know, it's, it's one of multiple to get nerdy about it. It's one of multiple theories of where sort of the variety of human morality comes from and how to describe it. We're not going to get into the sort of scholarly debate. Let's just say that whether or not he and his colleagues descriptions of where these things come from evolutionarily is true or whether or not maybe all these could actually be re reduced in some way down to care and harm. We don't, we're not worried about that. The point is just that when you put his stuff into practice and you use it as an explanatory lens, it explains a lot. Um, people who have been with this show for a long time will probably remember that reading The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt was sort of what led me eventually to pursuing a psychology doctorate instead of theology. So this stuff is very close to my heart. I found it uh, very helpful, tons of explanatory power, like you said earlier, why people do the things that they do. And I was like, oh, wow, this is giving me so much more explanatory power than theological answers or rubrics are giving me. So anyway, obviously I'm excited. Let's start with the with the five foundations, right? So there is Great. a sixth liberty. We're not going to worry about that one, like you said. But the big five, well, <laughs> big five, not to be confused with the big five personality test, the five main moral foundations or taste buds, as he calls them, are authority, sanctity, loyalty, care, and fairness, right? And there are... Yes. Uh, negative versions of each of those, right? So harm is the opposite of care, et cetera. Uh, betrayal is the opposite of loyalty. So let's go through each of them. So let's talk about uh, authority, respect for authority. Yeah, there's a pe there are people for whom respect for authority is extremely important. You know, one thing out of my marketing background, so I'll bring my life, the different parts of my life together, is that, you know, we have segmentations of people and understanding how different people react. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I went to seminaries to understand why people did what they did. And I didn't get the answers, as you said, in the theologies, because they, they didn't, it didn't really answer the question that I had. But when I started understanding that a certain part of the, part of the population, which you could say is about a third, have really strong respect for authority. 
and that this arises out of being uncomfortable with ambiguity. Uh, they want certainty, they want a quick answer, and they get it from the people they trust. Uh, liberals, on the other hand, have a weak respect for authority, and it comes out of a negative reaction to authority figures who violate their trust. Sometimes I administer the uh, Moral Foundation questionnaire when I do talks to groups, and one time I got a question from the audience that said, what should I do if I have zero respect for authority? <laughs> and I said, well, do you need a trustworthy leader? And they said, yes. <laughs> so we all have that. We all have that need. Yeah, the desire. Yeah. But we've been burned. Some of us have been burned. And so we have to. One of the things I talk about in my talks is how we all have all five of them. They just manifest differently and with different importance. And we need to recognize that. I mean, you've already kind of touched on a couple incredibly central themes for listeners of this show, right? On the conservative side of authority or the people for whom they are sort of high in their uh, authority as a moral value, there's the certainty aspect. And most people listening have stories about that. They have experiences in churches where certainty was, if not at least sort of made to seem quite important. Um, it might've been literally the, the main product that that church was offering, you know, all, all the way to that extreme. And then on the other side, you've got liberals who often feel mistrust because they have been betrayed by authoritative figures. And so how can we trust them? So now you're into the reason for a lot of people's faith deconstruction. So I just love like, you know, this is the proof in the pudding for me is that this stuff just it gets in there and it gives language and some explanatory power for what we're seeing. Okay, so that's authority. And we're going to come back to each of these and talk about them more in church context. I just, it's it's fun to do a little bit of commentary in the, in the uh, table of contents, so to speak. Yeah, but also I think that importantly, it gives you a way to talk to people for whom that's important. Yes. And you, and you getting to that sort of persuade, don't preach, right? The title of your book. I've said this a lot of times before, like if you, this is a height example. If you want to pass gun control, you don't have a liberal actor talking to voters. You have a former NFL coach. You have a retired general, somebody who has purchase within that community. That's the person you want as your mouthpiece, right? And it's common sense, but we, especially us on the left who think we have all this great analytic skill about the right, you know, we, we sort of gloss over common sense stuff like that. Right. But there's also a vocabulary associated with each of these. And I has a vocabulary list that I've been adding to. Um, so you not only just the people you use, but the, the kind of words you use and the concepts you use all help you speak to people for whom that's important. I'll get to this later, but at the Kansas effort to um, talk about abortion and push back on the law, use some of these concepts in their work and was very powerful. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, okay. So I'll make a note that when we go through the, the church application, let's also talk about vocabulary at each point. These are the kind of words that are used uh, in these communities. That's the marketing side, Karen. Yes. That's valuable. I love it. Okay. So the first was authority. The next is loyalty or belonging. 
Yeah, I like to use the word belonging because I think to me, loyalty has a negative component, negative connotation to it to liberals. But when I talk about it in terms of belonging, they have a much more positive sense of it. And specifically in my Quaker community, which I give, do a lot of talks among Quakers, you know, community is a huge part of, of our, of our belief system that we need to have community. So, so that's why I've renamed it in my book anyway. But when I talk about it, I talk about how conservatives have a much higher need to belong than liberals do. Now, everybody has a need to belong. Everybody has a need to belong. And there's been research to show that people who belong to groups live longer. It's been used for treatment of anxiety disorders. Uh, people, doctors in the UK prescribe belonging to a physical group. It doesn't, online doesn't work as well. Um, so belonging is a you know crucial need that we all have. But conservatives are much more patriotic. They're much more um, locally based, the, the, the community they belong to. And liberals consider themselves more global citizens. So, Yeah, and that's where you can even imagine something like having traveled. You know, I was just with a buddy uh, yesterday, actually, and we were talking about our passports. We had our passports with us. And we were like bemoaning the fact that we had gotten new ones because our old ones had gotten full. And we were joking that that's like the ultimate white liberal progressive sort of bona fide is like, yeah, I've had my passport stamped. Like I have seen the world. I've traveled. I'm I'm a part of this larger human community, whereas uh, your standard conservative person is not necessarily that interested in all that travel. I mean, that, some of that's personality, some of it's culture, or when they do, they're less comfortable. The point just being that it is a it, it is like a badge of honor and it says something now, whether or not that travel led to us, you know, any kind of genuine connection with the locals in those communities, it probably didn't, right? It's fairly superficial, but it gets to that kind of the, the sort of the sheen and the value that we place on that as, as people who are my buddy and I both broadly on the left. Right. And uh, one of the markers of conservatives is that you're more likely to be living within 50 miles of where you're born. Right. And I saw that when I was in seminary um, in rural Indiana, you know, I would meet people who basically had never been outside of the state. You know, they just, they're really, I'll call it place bound. Yeah. And liberals are more on more rootless. And we're starting to see, you know, as so many of our friends, you know, are dealing with fertility issues, getting married later, meeting people later, um, and but not just around reproduction, around keeping friend groups together. You know, it's like rare for me to find a group of fellow liberals who've all been in the same place and stayed friends for a decade or longer. And and so even I, I, I think we're starting to see some of the prices that are being paid that were not clear in our 20s that are becoming more clear in 30s, 40s, 50s. So anyway, a lot we could talk about with each of these. Uh, the third one is sacredness or sanctity. Uh, also, this one's sometimes called purity. This is the purity and disgust module of our psychology that gets activated around things like gore and spoiled food, but also sex and sexual taboo, right? Yes. So, uh, yeah, sacredness is the flip side of disgust. Um, and it's not just, it, it does arrive out of, out of a physical reaction. People who are easily nauseated are more likely to have high sacredness, easily dis disgusted. That's incredible. I love that. 
And um, there's also a tie to what the, your natural order of things are. So if something violates your natural order of things, you're more likely to have a high level of disgust. And people who are conservative are more likely to have less tolerance and disgust of new foods, all sorts of dimensions of this. My favorite example of this, and I have said it on the show before, but it's been a while, from Haidt and his colleagues' work on their sort of cross-cultural, um, moral, they call them uh, moral, not not quandaries. Uh, what's Don't the word? Matter. Dumbfounding. Yeah. These moral dumbfounding questions, these like really well worded questions that kind of get at these, these difficult moral, moral situations. And the chicken one is great. If you have children listening with you, go ahead and skip 30 or 60 seconds here. But they ask people and they ask people in like rural Peru and in like, you know, Boston or whatever, if a let's say a man goes to the store and buys a rotisserie chicken and brings it home, and before he eats that chicken, he has sex with the chicken. Has anything immoral happened? And this is a really good indicator of whether or not you've got much of this purity, sacredness, sanctity thing. Because if, if all you care about is fairness and care and harm, which we'll talk about liberals and conservatives and how they score differently on these five things. If all you've got is harm, well, nobody was harmed. The chicken wasn't harmed. It's already dead. It's already been cooked. The person wasn't harmed. I mean, maybe you might get there psychologically or something, but you have a hard time explaining how it's been harmful. If, however, you have a, a view of the human person as, as sacred, that we are like above the animals, we are closer to the angels and closer to God, and it is defiling for us to engage in something like that, then you'd say that's immoral. The man has defiled himself, maybe even in some sense defiled the chicken, right? Right. Um, and also, it, this is tied in with racism. If it, something violates your sense of what the social order should be, yes, that can result in, um, and you, you see the again, back to the language, you see this in the language that's being used. You know, language about infestation or infections yeah. or demeaning language. That's a sense. That's a tip off that the it violated the sense of sacredness. Yeah, this this goes some way to explaining why racists tend to be conservative. Yes. It's not. It's not really necessarily obvious that that would be the case. I mean, you could you could imagine a world like ours, but where for some reason. The racists were, you know, and you do see this occasionally like eugenics projects on the left, sort of like progress, and that includes racial purity. I mean, we have examples of it in history, but it's not nearly as common as, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. We got to keep things the way they are. We got to keep this, these boundaries and this sort of purity. And that's the more common version of racism that we see in human history. Yeah, I was just reading some Nazi literature, and it's all over that. You just see it so obviously. Yeah. Um, okay, fourth is uh, care slash harm. Yeah, this is one that's really much higher in uh, liberals, uh, lower in conservatives. Not low in conservatives, but it is lower. And for conservatives, well, first of all, I think the topic is pretty obvious, care for others. Yeah. So really care more about people's feelings. You care more about harming people, avoiding it. That's a driving di differentiator. Um, and for conservatives, it seems bounded 
by the other there's this interaction with the other moral foundations. So you're going to have greater empathy for people in your group, greater empathy for those who followed the rules, greater empathy for those who didn't do anything wrong, uh, and no empathy for those who break the rules. Yeah. So it still matters that you care, but the situations in which you care are uh, more constrained on the right. Uh, or we should say left-right is is sort of how we talk about it in the States, but just people with a conservative temperament, uh, this is cross-cultural and has been established, you know, well outside the United States. So this is not a Democrat Republican type of a thing, although it does, it maps fairly neatly onto that divide in the States, but in parliamentary systems and stuff, it's, it's less clean. Um, yeah. So, okay. Care, care, harm. That one's pretty straightforward. The last one is, is fairness or justice. Yeah, and fairness is very interesting because it's much higher on the on the more progressive or left, but it, but it, it is on both sides. But the form of it different. I call it a flavor in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, the two most common flavors are uh, equality, which people substitute for fairness. They don't they don't see the difference. You know, they don't see those different flavors. This one is so interesting to me. I, I, yeah, absolutely. The, and liberals tend to to congregate on the fair on the equality side of it. The other one they tend to favor is equity. And again, they use that word as if equity means fairness, but it doesn't. It's one flavor of fairness. Um, and equity means making up for a previous wrong. Um, and then the third form is the one favored by conservatives, which is merit-based, um, which is you have to earn it in some way. And we'll talk about this about churches in a minute. But um, what I found it very interesting when I was looking for di- people who use different forms of fairness, um, how they don't recognize that that all forms have some resonance with e- resonance with everyone. But the New York uh, Marathon ha- uses all different uses all three forms of fairness to qualify for the marathon. Oh, let's let's hear that. So the New York City Marathon has incorporated the three different flavors of marathon of of fairness in the various ways. Um, you can be you can apply to be included in a random drawing, so that's an equality-based favor of fairness. You can qualify by running faster times, which is the merit-based form of fairness, or you can raise money for charity, which is a different kind of merit-based form of fairness. Or you can participate in several local races and volunteering, which is kind of a merge of belonging with fairness. Yeah, or the equity, right? The sort of like yeah. bringing up the, you know, participation and bringing the floor higher, right? Right, right. So they've they've really blended all three of these. That's brilliant. Yeah, I like that. I think then, the area where the fairness topic comes up most in politics is affirmative action, where you can really see kind of people's moral foundations showing through in sharp relief. So the the classic conservative counter argument is, hey, if somebody is more fit for the job based on their resume and their job experience, it is immoral for them to not get that job. We need to find other ways of sort of bringing people up, whatever. Now, sometimes that's a smokescreen for wanting to do nothing, right? There, and all the sort of equality versus equality of outcome, so-called equality of outcome versus so-called equality of opportunity also often a smokescreen for not doing anything, but but for people who truly um, follow those foundations there, 
the equality of opportunity, people would say, well, look, we, we do want to make sure that people have a, a fairly level playing field. But after that, we, we should not sort of goose the system at all. And then people on the other side go, well, there is no such thing as a level playing field. So we, we have to do equity. We have to goose the system and get a, a quality of outcomes, at least to some degree, because there's no other way to do it. And so it's it's really why people are talking directly past each other on those issues is that they are using what they think is the same and in some sense is a related and similar foundation, but they have different flavors of it. You're right. And so they're talking past each other. Yeah. And that also comes up in the topic of reparations. Right. Exactly. Universal in, universal basic income that comes up pretty often in this kinds of discussions. But what's really interesting is the research with really young kids about how they develop these senses of they, they all develop all of them, all kids, but at different times. Hmm. So it seems like these um, different flavors of fairness are all like wired in us in some way. But what they found is that when there was effort involved, then the kids went to merit-based fairness. But when there was no effort, that's when they do equality. And I think that's a good rule of thumb to think about when the different flavors are appropriate. Yeah. Liberals can often accuse conservatives that a merit-based system is not actually just or fair. And I think that they're making that accusation based on assumptions about equity or equality. But we talked about this at, at Theology Beer Camp that look, that is still a type of justice. Like if you imagine the scales of justice, um, does that metaphor apply to someone who's making a merit argument? Of course it does. They're saying like, hey, they put this in, they should get this back. You can imagine the two scales kind of balancing out. Now you can disagree with that in the particulars or in the theoretical, but I think that it's prejudicial to say that that's not someone enacting their moral foundation of fairness. They obviously yeah. are using that that psychology. Yeah. And the federal civil service system was instituted to promote people on the basis of fairness. And it's resulted in a much more equitably based in terms of diversity um, population. So it, do, it does work. Okay. Let's talk about really briefly, because we've sort of hinted at this, but People take these tests, the, the sort of moral foundations quiz, yourmorals.org, I believe is the website for it. So Josh can put that link in the notes if people want to go take their own. I've done it. It's really interesting. And what Haidt and his colleagues have found essentially is that um, conservatives score on all five. And, you know, it's, it's maybe not a flat line across the five, but they have more, they tend to have more of a mix. And liberals tend to have a whole bunch of fairness uh, and harm, care, and they have a whole lot less of the other three. Is that basically your read of the data as well, Karen? Yes. Although not everybody fits that profile. I'm one who's off the, who doesn't fit that, that categorization, which is one reason why I think I find this so interesting. Yep, probably. Because, you know, I really am trying to use this to understand the other people who aren't like me. <laughs> and then, okay, so let's apply this to the church situation. So this is a, you sent me this awesome word document. It's basically a table where you have laid out the five foundations and we've kind of already gone through the 
uh, explanation of each of those. And then you have two categories. You have liberal churches and conservative churches. So first of all, why don't you define those terms? What counts as a liberal church? What counts as a conservative church in, in your reckoning? Well, as a Quaker, definitely the, the the group of Quakers that I belong to in the Northeast, I'm in New Jersey, they're all, they're all liberal. Uh, not all Quakers are like that around the country. So let me qualify that. In your area of the country, there are Quakers who are definitely not, do not fit in that category. Um, Unitarian Universalists also fit in that category, Unity. And then some mainline Protestant denominations fit that. I think Episcopals would fit, um, you know, the Methodist Church in the middle of splitting. So part then part of it would Half fit. Half of them, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, those of us who've spent time or have friends in some of these mainline Protestant uh, denominations, you, you kind of get the sense these days, since everything seems to be kind of splitting along sociopolitical boundaries, you could figure out pretty quickly if you're at a liberal church or a conservative church. And then there is this kind of um, seeker-friendly evangelical mass of churches that are trying to straddle the middle. I think that what my sense uh, from from doing this podcast, interviewing people, hearing about people's experiences, is that mostly those those kind of non-denominational uh, Acts 29 type whatever churches are are trying to look like they're in the middle, but fundamentally, um, when the rubber hits the road, they are dependent upon the patronage of conservatives. And so that actually can lead to uh, some betrayal, for, for instance, for, for liberals who, who go to these churches that seem like they're really trying to kind of cross the aisle. But ultimately, if you ask them about women becoming pastors or affirming queer people or, you know, biblical inerrancy or whatever, they're, they're going to end up siding with the conservative thing. And they're going to consider that to be the faithful, the faithful option. So there really is quite a, quite a red sea uh, in the States anyway. I, I, I'm curious if that's true, like in other countries. And I don't have a lot of information about that. Oh, so um, a new, great book is called The Weirdest People in the World, which is by Joseph Henrik. Uh, he's an anthropologist. And he basically says, you know, first of all, the acronym weird is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So the, de the developed world. And so we in the developed world, we have this right-left split or liberal versus progressive, liberal and progressive versus conservative. We have that going on. But the rest of the world is conservative, especially on moral foundations. And I think that's such an interesting uh, and kind of troubling fact for those of us who do see ourselves as global citizens. Like, if we get too close to the rest of the globe, we're like, oh, I wouldn't go to church with you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we have that in the Quaker denomination. One of the largest locations for uh, Quakers is in Kenya, and they're very, very conservative. And I had a classmate in seminary who came out of Kenya, and um, he ended up was exploring his sexuality. He ended up getting outed as gay, where he definitely wasn't necessarily gay, but he he uh, and um, they. Um, he had death threats. His possessions got destroyed. His wife and kids um, vowed never to see him again. And he, you know, he got asylum in the U.S. because of the death threats. So, uh, you know, when we look about ourselves as global citizens, we don't really recognize that the rest of the world has a different per uh, uh, perception of what's moral than us. One question that I have, and, and maybe we can come back to this at the end if, if we find 
a little bit of, of grist for the mill, I'll make a note of it, is where do the teachings of Jesus fit along this? You can listen to the rest of this episode by joining the Patreon at patreon.com slash Dan Koch.